Uh, the teaching text for today will be on the screen. It's Psalm 11. And Colin, I have you pull that up. There we go. Um, psalm 11. This is a psalm of David. And David says, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And David replies, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. On the wicked, he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice, and the upright will see his face. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, when I first became a Christian, uh, I was 17, one of the most challenging things that I had to deal with uh, was learning the Christian lingo, like the things that people say. Um, and so, for instance, uh, my youth pastor asked me, or told me I needed to have a quiet time, and I didn't know what that was. What, I, I thought it was like just sitting quietly and doing nothing, kind of like your parents on like a car trip, when they tell you, like, hey, we're going to play the quiet game, and that's what we're going to do. And so that's what I did for a couple of days. I just practiced sitting and doing nothing when I woke up in the morning. You're supposed to do it in the morning. And so for a couple of days, I just, I, just, I just sat there quietly for a bit. And eventually, the youth pastor that was mentoring me at the time, he was like, hey, how's your quiet times going? And I was like, pretty good, pretty good. Um, how, long, how long am I supposed to sit there? And he was like, what do you mean? And I was like, you know, just in my quiet time, how long do I sit there? And he was like, I don't know, as long as it takes. And I was like, yeah. As long, as long as what takes, specifically, like, is, is something supposed to happen? <laughs> and uh, he was like, until you finish reading the Bible. And I was like, yes, I, that's what I've been doing. It's okay, that makes more sense. But it was hard for me, and I think it's something that, I mean, there's all this stuff, like, are you washed in the blood? Are you born again? Are you all this stuff? And I'm like, no, I don't know. I have no idea all this stuff. I don't understand that, that lingo. But I think for us as Christians, there are things like that that people say, and so, again, uh, seek first the kingdom of God, all those different things. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Like, if, 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 if there's not explanation for those things, it can be difficult to actually understand. It can sound really good and very Christian and very holy, but if we don't understand what it actually looks like, it's hard to put something into practice that you don't actually know what it is and what it, what it means. And so, for instance, David here says, I have taken refuge in the Lord. I take refuge in the Lord. And I think something for us is to learn to take refuge in the Lord but the issue is, if we don't actually know what that looks like, we're not going to do it. And then if we don't do it, we won't experience what David experiences here. And I think the tragedy about all of that is that there are spaces and times in our lives where we really do need to run to a place for refuge and find hope and peace and safety and security. And if we don't know what it looks like to actually do that, if it's just a platitude that we say to ourselves, if it's just a, a liturgy that we say that's like, oh, yeah, we just say this, I don't really know what it means, but I just say it over and over and over again, go take refuge in the Lord or whatever, then we will actually miss out. And then in those spaces in our lives where we actually need security and rest and, self, and, and, and saving and things like that, we won't experience it. And so, for instance, I believe there are times when we really do need refuge. Uh, last year, around this time, I was on my way to Florida to... Um, a reunion, a family reunion on my dad's side to see my family and stuff like that. And um, they were all mad at me for getting there late, which I drove the furthest of everybody. But anyway, so I got there late, 
And uh, when I got there, I walk out of the beach, and they're already there and all those different things. And they start asking me questions like, how was the drive? What took you so long? I bet you stopped and ate at da-da-da-da. And I was like, leave me alone. Um, but then I, I'd just gotten some tattoos, and they were like, oh, can Christians even get... And they're all pagans, you know. But uh, they're like, can Christians even get tattoos? I don't even, you know, I don't even understand any of this stuff. And just jo- and it's just family stuff. And they were joking around and all these different things and asking me about my job and my family and, and all that stuff. Just tons of questions about nonsense and stuff like that. But then that night, my sister's 12-year-old, we rushed him to the med uh, because he was having trouble breathing. And then that next day, on vacation, he passed away. And then all of a sudden, the questions changed. I mean, it wasn't like, tell me about your tattoos. It was like, please tell me about heaven. Like, where is he now? Like, the, the little ones, the little kids asking, like, where is Braden now? Experience like him. How can you have faith in the midst of suffering like this and experience like this? How could God, who knew something was going to happen, even allow this kid to be born if we knew this is the way it was going to go? The questions changed pretty substantially. And the thing that struck me was like it was, it was all this. It was all like I'm just, they were all just looking for refuge, trying to ask a question in order to find some answer that gave them some sort of peace that they could sit there and they could hold on to and hope in and all those different things. And that's what they were looking for. And I think for us and for many of us, we've all had our own situations where we've walked through those things for ourselves, where you have these spaces in your life where what you actually need is refuge, what you actually need is peace, what you actually need is hope. And these things happen when it's like, man, like David, it says right here, like, what do you do when the foundations fail? What do you do when the things that were supposed to go this way and everything I planned for my life was going to go this way and none of them happened? Everything that I thought was certain is uncertain now. Everything that, I, that should have gone this way, A, B, and C, it doesn't do any of those things. What do you do? And David says he trusts in the Lord. And I think we have experiences like that. We have those things in our marriage where the foundations just seem to be falling. We have those things in our relationships, in our jobs, with our health. And it's like, this isn't the way it was supposed to go. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't the way I thought it would go. And these things that are certain are no longer certain. And it's in those spaces that I think David finds himself in because he's running for his life from his father-in-law who's supposed to love him, like mine loves me, um, who's supposed to love him, and yet his father-in-law is actually trying to hunt him down and kill him. And so he's like, the founda- they're saying the foundations are failing. And David says, well, it's okay. In the Lord I have taken refuge. And again, if we say that to you, if we were to say it to like, you're dealing with something difficult, I'd just say, just go, or you're struggling with something, just go take refuge in the Lord. It could sound trite, and it could sound difficult, especially if you don't understand what it means. But to David, it was this rich, really, really rich thing that he ran to that found the peace and the hope that he was longing for. And that's what I want to talk about today, what that actually looks like to take refuge in the Lord. Because for David, to him, he uses this Hebrew word refuge. And really, it carries with it in the Hebrew the idea of to tranquilize, which isn't a word we use a ton. Uh, But basically what he's saying is like, in the Lord, I have tranquilized myself. With the Lord, I have tranquilized my fears and my anxieties and my worries. I have become tranquil within, with this man, with, with God himself. That's what he's done for me. And so realistically, he's like, my, my mind no longer is racing with my worries. My heart no longer is sinking into my stomach where I can't feel like I can breathe. And my body's not shaking in fear anymore. I have become tranquilized. It's like taking a dart, a tranquilizer dart, and shooting himself with it, with the Lord. And it's like, in that, I was able to actually come to calm and to relax and to be tranquil with him. And so that's what he experiences, and this is what he's trying to tell his friends who are saying, you should flee to the mountains. And he was like, I've become tranquil with the Lord. And he's not denying his problem, because I think that's easy for us to do. It's like, oh, if I'm going to have faith, I have to just act like everything's fine. And that's not faith. That's, 
idiocy, really. It's, it's avoidance. It's still your brain trying to be your own refuge and just tell you the problems aren't real. And that's not what he does. But he is doing something and he practices these three things that he does. And it leads him to this place where he finds peace. And so, again, what I want to do today is look at the three things that David does when he says, I have taken refuge in the Lord. There's three things that he does. I want to look at those things and then how we can begin doing those things as well. Now, quickly, it's important to realize that David does these three things and his problems don't go away. Like Saul is chasing him, trying to kill him. Saul would do this 14 times in David's life. Over an 11-year span, David goes on the run from his father-in-law for 11 years. Um, in the time, so he, he, it's not like he practices these things in Saul and God's like, oh, I'll just make Saul stop. He doesn't do that. The problems don't go away. The experience of the problems changes, but the problems themselves don't go away. David, eventually over his life, he's betrayed by his own family. His family gets abducted. He's almost killed numerous times. Like he does this and takes refuge in the Lord and it doesn't remove his problems. It just changes his experience of those problems. And so I think his experience is an invitation for us as well. Doing these three things won't take away all of the things that you're dealing with in your life. But I do think that it can change the experience that you have in the midst of those problems, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of those things, so that what you experience is what he experiences. It's like, you should run to the hills. And it's like, why would I run to the hills? Why would I turn away from the only one who can actually give me the peace and the security that I'm really longing for? And I think the invitation from David's life is is the same for us today. We can experience this where our fears no longer rule and reign in our hearts and in our lives. And so that's what I want to look at today. What does it look like to actually take refuge in the Lord? Three things. First thing we see David do is this. David fixed his eyes on the Lord. I want you to notice the difference between the two comments, his, his, the people close to him and what they say, and then what David says. So the next slide here says that they say, Colin, next slide here. Colin, can you, thanks, man. One more. There we go. They say, look, the wicked bend their bows, and they set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright at heart. When the foundation, he observed, destroyed, what can the righteous do? And then notice what David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes everyone on earth. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked who love violence, he hates with a passion. And if you just look at the detail, keep that up, but you can look at the detail of each description. One, with pinpoint accuracy, can describe the enemy and describe the problems. It's not they have bows. It's like they are setting their arrow against the string. Like it's very, very specific. And that's what's being said in. But then if you look at David, David's able to describe in detail the Lord. One focuses as a researcher on the issues and the worries and the problems, and one focuses on the king and his glory and all the rest of it. And if you notice, which ones are the ones that are actually fearful and afraid and wanting to run for their lives? It's the ones that have their eyes fixed on the problems, not the one who has his eyes fixed on the one who rules over everything in creation. And so they say that foundations are being destroyed, and he's like, I have my eyes on the foundation. Like The, my, the foundation can't be destroyed. Unless Saul can go to heaven, remove God from his throne, then like, this can't happen. This isn't the way that it works. And so one is fixated on the problems, and one is fixated on the king. And then it changes their experience. And I think many times this is our experience too. I think we have this idea that if we can, if we can worry enough, we'll worry our way to peace. Like if I just, I just need to look further out into the future and if I can look at all the different worries and all the different things that could possibly go wrong in my life with my spouse, with my kids, with my journey, with my job, if I can get all those things out and look far enough out, then eventually I will worry my way to peace. But it doesn't work that way. The testimony of the scriptures is where you fix your eyes is what forms you. And so if you fix your eyes on your worries, you will not become someone who's more peaceful. You'll become someone who's more worried. 
If you want to actually experience peace, you should look to someone who is called the king of peace. Like, that's who you should look to if that's the things that you're looking for. And this is what David does. All of it, all of David's experience has to do with where he fixes his eyes, what he chooses to focus on the most. Um, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, it's this Jewish man who is brilliant. He wrote this book called Eyes Remade for Wonder. And uh, he tells this story of the importance of where we fix our eyes. And I love this story, and I'll share it at, at this church. I will share this story maybe once a year, maybe more. I love this story. But he's referencing the Exodus, and he's talking about this, when the people of Israel were saved out of Egypt and uh, were walking through the Red Sea. And this is what he says. He says, Jewish tradition says that the splitting of the Red Sea was the greatest miracle ever performed. It was so extraordinary that on that day, even a common servant beheld more than all the miracles beheld by Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel combined. And yet, we have this one Jewish teaching, one, one midrash, that mentions two Israelites, Reuven and Shimon, who had a different experience. Apparently, the bottom of the sea, though it was safe to walk on, was not completely dry, but a little muddy, like a beach at low tide. Reuven stepped in, curled his lip. What is this muck? Shimon scowled. There's mud all over the place. This is just like the slime pits of Egypt, replied Reuben. What's the difference, complained Shimon. Mud here, mud there, it's all the same. And so it went for the two of them grumbling all the way across the bottom of the sea. And because they never once looked up, they never understood why on the distant shore everyone else was singing songs of praise. And for Reuben and Shimon, the miracle never happened. I love that story, but I think it's so brilliant. It's like this idea of like you never saw that. You just missed it. You missed the glory. You have a wall of water to your right and to your left, and you're looking at, because your eyes are fixed on the mud, what you see is this is just like slavery in Egypt. You're being delivered, and you've missed deliverance. You've missed all of it, all of the joy and everything that everybody else is experiencing because their eyes were fixated on the wonders that are happening among them, but they chose to stick their faces down in this mud. And because they fixed their eyes there, their experience was very, very different than everybody else. And I think in David's life, that's what's happening. There's these people in his life that are saying, things are bad, everything's shifting, everything's bad. I don't know what, you, what you're supposed to do, but I, I just, something's wrong. And he's like, yes, there's a lot of things wrong, but the foundation hasn't fallen. I have my eyes fixed on someone who actually rules and reigns over all of this stuff, who knew this was coming, who knew this was going to be a part of my journey, who called me into this anyways and is there for me right now. He still sits upon his throne in heaven, un unhindered, unrivaled. There's no equal, like there's no one like him, and he is for me. And so because his eyes are fixed there, it just changes his experience. And so for him, for David, he fixed his eyes on the Lord. That's the first thing he does. The second thing that he does is that David reminds himself of who God has been in the past and what God has done in the past. So in verse 6, if you see it, he says, On the wicked he will rain fiery coals of burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. It's a really intense <laughs> uh, passage, but what he's referencing is Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, this is what happened in Genesis, where God, this is how he has dealt with the wicked. And so for David, it's like he asked himself, here's what I'm going through. I'm dealing with wickedness. How has God dealt with wickedness in the past? And he looks back and he finds himself, because he's a good reader of God's word, he finds himself in Genesis and he's like, this is how God deals with the wicked. And he's like, so for him, he's like, I don't, I don't have to make this right. I don't have to. He was back then is who he'll be. He deals with wickedness. I don't have to deal with it myself. And so I'm just going to trust that who he was back then is who he'll be today. It's what my friend Gib, my old lead pastor at the old church, calls um, a relational precedent. And so he's, God has, has set a precedent in place of this is how I deal 
with wickedness. This is what it looks like when wickedness is in front of me. I demolish it. I take care of it. I'm the one who actually wipes out wickedness. I'm the one who does those things. And so for David, he's just leaning on that relational precedent and going, here's who he's been in the past. He will be that same person before. We're fickle. We're not like that. Who we were in the past may not be who we are in the, in the future, but he's faithful. Who he was in the past is who he'll be in the future. And for David, he just looks to that and is constantly going back into his mind and going, who was he in, in a situation like this before? Can I find a similar situation in, in redemptive history and what God has done and then take some peace from who he's going to be in my situation now based on who he was? And he does this all the time. If you read the Psalms, he does this, but the most um, memorable time that he does it is, is with David and Goliath, him fight, fighting Goliath. He, he has this moment where he's actually talking to then the king, Saul, who's not chasing him at the point. And he's saying, he's like, I want to go fight Goliath. And then Saul's like, this is a terrible idea, but I'm going to read it in 1 Samuel 17. But it says, David said to Saul, go and fight this Philistine. Uh, this Philistine, your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go and fight this Philistine. Uh, you're only a young man, and he's been a warrior since he was a young man. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping the father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep with the, uh, from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And then verse 37 is the point. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Who he was back then is who he will be for me now. I just, I, I've watched him deliver me. I've watched his salvation come through for me. I've watched him been faithful in, in my life. And so I'm just assuming and counting on and taking peace in the fact that who he was then is who he'll be now. And David's just reminded himself consistently and going, who was he then? That's who he'll be now. And God actually wanted his people to do this. This is something that he wanted us consistently to do, to constantly remember. And one of the themes of the Old Testament is remember me. And my people have forgotten me. Like, it's constant. They forget who he is, and they forget what he's like, and so they turn to all these other things that are small and insignificant and don't do anything, that don't actually save. And so God actually wanted this practice, remembering and then using who he was to be who he's going to be. He wanted that to actually be something that they did. One of the most substantial ways that he does this is with the, uh, Israel's new year. So in the Exodus, he saves them out of Egypt and brings them into a new land. And then what he does, is he's like, hey, the, the month that I did that, I saved you and did this amazing thing, water on your right and your left and walls and you know, killed the Egyptian army and you guys are fine, all of that. When I did that, that month is now your new year. Celebrate your new year here. Everybody else is going to watch the ball drop in January, not you. You're going to be doing it over here. Okay? You're going to be doing these things here. And so the idea was reorient your entire calendar around who I am and what I've done so that when it rolls around again and you get to it and everybody else is crushing you know, New Year three months before, you're actually doing it this time and then you're reminded, why do we do this again? Why do we celebrate it here? And it's like, oh, we, we celebrate it here because of that thing that God did that one time. It's like, oh, what did he do? Oh, he uh, saved us. We were slaves in Egypt and he brought us out there with an amazing uh, you know, wonders and miracles and all this stuff and there's plagues and this and basically just destroyed, we didn't have to lift a finger. He destroyed Egypt and he saved us completely. And so we just reorient our calendar around that whole thing. And he wanted that to be this thing that they constantly, every year they're reminded, who is God? Oh, he's the God who saves. And we're reminded at the beginning of our year to celebrate. It was with a celebration. We celebrate this thing, this Passover experience, so that they're constantly reminded, what is he like? And when they get into a space in the future and go like, I don't know what we should do. I don't know who should we turn to for salvation. It's like every year they're reminded, you should turn back to him. 
He's the one who saves. He's the one who's brought you this far, and he'll continue to carry you on. And the work that he began back then is the same work that he'll carry you through. He wanted this to be a consistent thing that we did in our lives because he knows if you can remember who he is and then count on it, you will actually be able to experience those things in the future, knowing, like, this is who you were. This is who you'll be. And so for David, that's been his experience, and that's what he's doing. Here's who he was. I'm not going to run for the hills. The God who has crushed wickedness before will crush wickedness again. And so I'm just going to rest. I don't have to make it right for myself. It's the same with, like, I don't have to kill Saul in the cave and all these different things. I don't have to do that. The Lord's going to take care of me and going to take care of this. Because he's done it before, I can count on him to do it again. So that's the second thing that David does. And then the third may be a disappointment to you, but David just repeats the cycle again. He just does those two things again. He just does it smaller. And so he's already fixed his eyes on the Lord. Then he reminds himself of what God has been in the past. And then in verse 7, look at verse 7. Here's who he is. Who is he? The Lord is righteous. What's he like? He loves justice. The, the, the Hebrew word love is in the past perfect tense, which isn't important other than the way it should read is he has loved justice. It's past tense and present tense. He has loved justice. He will love justice again. That's the way it should be written. It's just way too long in a song that's being written. But that's who is he? He's the Lord who loves righteous. Who, uh, what has he done? He has loved justice. And then therefore, I will announce who he's going to be in the future. The upright will see his face. I will experience his favor in my time. This is, this is who he is. This is what he's done. And I will experience, therefore, I will experience his favor in my time. And the idea is that David probably did this once. And it wasn't like, oh, this really, you know, like Novocaine and a thing. It's like it took a second. I think for David, he's like, he just repeats this over. And that's why I love what Rainey said about liturgy. He just repeats it to himself over and over. It's not like I practiced these three things and now this really amazing thing happens. Now all my fears are relieved and all this stuff. David just said this stuff and did this to him over and over to himself. Here's who the Lord is. Here's who he, what he's done in the past. Here's who the Lord is. Here's what he's done in the past. And he uses that over and over and over until his fears slowly but surely become more and more relieved to where peace swells a little bit more each time he says it as he looks to who God actually is and who, what, what God actually has done. And peace begins to, to swell up, hope swell up. And then he has this experience where he's like, I don't need to run because I have taken refuge in the Lord. And the idea is like he just kept running and hiding in this space and doing these things over and over and over again. And for him, this led him to the space where he's like, I, I'm, I'm okay. The problems are still there. They didn't go away, but I'm okay. He fixed his eyes on the Lord and he stayed there until his fears were tranquilized within him. And so this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to take refuge in the Lord, to fix our eyes on who he is, to remind ourselves of what he's done, and then just do it over and over and over. In your situation, every single thing that you're walking through, to do that consistently over and over and over again. And so what I want to do in the second half, that was the first half of my message. The second half is I just want to practically name some things that I think would be helpful in like how we could actually fix our eyes on the Lord so that you walk away with a better understanding of like, this is what I need to do for this specific thing. And so... One, we need to fix our eyes on the Lord, and here's what this can look like. Lawrence Kushner, again, gives insight to what it looks like to actually fix our eyes on the Lord. He talks about, he always talks about the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament rabbi. He's a Jewish rabbi. Uh, but he talks about Moses and the burning bush uh, and the importance of or, uh, what it looks like to fix our eyes. He says, in the ancient Near East, it was not uncommon to see bushes that would spontaneously combust. Because of the heat and the chemicals in the trees, bushes would naturally catch fire. But... How long would you have to watch wood burn before you knew whether or not it was being consumed? Even dry kindling takes several minutes to burn up. 
This then would mean that Moses would have to watch this amazing sight of the bush burning for several minutes before he could possibly know whether there was even a miracle to watch. The trick is to pay attention long enough to behold the miracle. There's another world right here within this one whenever we pay attention. And I love that idea of like, bushes burn all the time in the ancient Near East. It's just like wildfires in the West. Like, I mean, that stuff just happens. But how long do you have to sit there and fix your eyes on something to, before you even realize, oh, this is something that's un- unlike anything I've ever seen. And Moses just stayed there and fixed his eyes on this thing until the miracle happened. And David just stayed there fixing, fixing his eyes on the Lord until the miracle happened of peace swelling up versus, and his fears being relieved. And I think for us, this, again, this is why I read the Bible daily because a man in my life told me when I was 19, if you really want to experience the fullness of Christianity, you'll read your Bible. And I was like, sir, yes, sir. Also, could I marry your daughter? Like, I will do that thing. And this is why he has told you to read the scriptures. And this is why I will always continue to, to carry that torch because I agree. I have experienced my eyes being fixed on the Lord and my fears being relieved. Not all the time. I don't do this like David did and I don't do it like Larry did, but there's something here. This is why, excuse me. <clears throat> this is why he asks us to do this. And I would even say it's not even just reading it. Reading it is great, but reading it and checking it off is, is something else. All of the promises in the scriptures that are connected to reading the Bible aren't really about reading it. Like, so the promise, those who, you are blessed if you delight in the law of the Lord, then you will be stable and firm. There's no promise with reading it necessarily. The Pharisees read the scriptures and had them memorized, but they killed Jesus, so they clearly didn't, it didn't take. But for, for David, he's like, those who are, you will be blessed when you delight, your delight is in the law of the Lord. The idea is it, it'd be better for you not to just read through the whole thing in a year and be like, knock that out, but like find a section that you can feast on that you love where your delight becomes like, I just love reading this passage of scripture. And David says, if, you del- if your delight is in the law of the Lord, if you, your, your, your mind is, you want to fix your mind and your heart and your eyes on things that you delight in. You want to you fix your eyes on beauty. You want to do those things. And when you do, then you become like a tree that's planted by streams of water that produces fruit in season and out of season. The leaves never wither and all these different things. Like you become someone who's stable and firm and not tossed to and fro by all the winds and all the different stuff. And so the, this is why Larry's constantly saying, like, please read the scriptures, read the scriptures, read the scriptures, and why I will continue to do that. This is why we meet every week. The idea is not like, hey, make sure you're in church or you're going to go to hell. Like, no, that one, that's awful and not true. You don't, going to church doesn't save you from, from any of that. Jesus saves. But the, the point is we have this space where we're reoriented. The world shapes us and forms us by what we do consistently. And so we have this space where we gather together weekly and we're reminded like, oh yeah, we, we're all sinners and yet we're loved by someone who loves sinners. And we're all screw up, but like here we are together. And then we, we this is why Chris and the worship team sing songs. To, they're trying to fix our eyes on something greater than our problems. And to go like, you, you, know, you keep hope alive. You, the, uh, fear won't be my future because you're my future. All these different songs that they sing, you're my living hope. You're, I was an orphan, now I'm not. I needed shelter and you became my shelter. Like this is, they're just trying every week to just lift our eyes off of the other things that catch our attention and try and fix our eyes on who God actually is so that our hearts actually begin to do what our mouths are declaring. And they begin to praise and to experience the peace that we're singing about. This is why I'm thrilled. I mean, Rainy loves liturgy. I love liturgy. I think we're, you are reformed by what you repeat. You can reform yourself by what you repeat. 
And so for us, we all have our own daily liturgies and all the things, we call them schedules and calendars, but those are our liturgies, those are our rhythms. And so for us, we want to constantly be reminded of like, this is why we sing, the call to worship, this is why we sing. From the worship, we want to ascribe worth to Jesus to elevate him higher than anything else in our lives so that we go, you are greater than any problem that I'm dealing with or any issue I'm dealing with. From the text, we want to see, elevate Jesus so that you're like, what's the point of all of this? It's like, oh, to ascribe worth to Jesus because he's changed everything and rules and reigns in history and we want to give him praise and honor so that our lives actually fall in balance with who he's called us to be. And so consistently, this is what we want to do over and over and over again so that we are reformed into people by what we have repeated, but we're reformed into people whose fears don't rule their lives, but peace rules their lives because our king is a king of peace. We're, we're not tossed to and fro by all the different cultural movements and all the different things, but it's like, man, I have a firm foundation because the foundation can't shift or move by any of this stuff because Jesus is that foundation. And so that's what it looks like to stay there long enough, to fix your eyes long enough until the miracle happens, until the peace begins to swell. That's what Moses did, that's what David did. I think this is for us to go slowly through these things, to delight in God's word, to delight in time with him in prayer, and to be shaped by something that seems like nothing. Standing there and looking at a bush burn seems like nothing. There's another book, John Ortberg, he, I don't have the quote because I deleted it, which is dumb now, I wish I had it, but... Um, but he's talks, he talks about that idea, and he goes, if Moses would have, would have turned away, if he'd have been too busy, like, I'm just too busy to watch this bush burn. Like, I got sheep I got to go take care of. Like, if he would have just left it and not said, I need to go over and see why the bush isn't consumed, if he would have left, he would have missed all of his everything. He would have missed the exodus. He would have missed... Uh, the people, I mean, the, the walls of water, the Red Sea splitting, he would have missed his entire calling. He would have missed seeing the promised land. He would have missed all these different things. He would have missed this relationship that he had with God all because it was like, I'm too busy. I'm doing this thing. I, I, I can't turn aside and stare at this thing long enough. He would have missed so much in his life, but he chose to. No, I want to go over and I want to see and everything hinged on him saying, no, I should turn aside. I should slow down. I should do this thing. And I think for us, it's like, I want my fears to be relieved. I don't want to be ruled and reigned by these things. I want these things to happen. It's like, take some time, go slowly, fix your eyes on him and not on your problems. Which can you describe better? Can you describe your problems more or can you describe the Lord better? Which do you talk about the most? Can you talk more and more time about your problems or more and more about the Lord? How you answer those questions determines where you actually experience the peace in your life and what you're actually experiencing in terms of worry and peace. And so the invitation is not like, do this, fix your eyes on me or else. It's not that. It's like, please, experience what I have for you. You can actually experience life with me, but fix your eyes on me. So go slowly, fix your eyes on the Lord. Second thing, we need to remember where God has been faithful in the past. We need to search our history and remember where God has been faithful. Big things, small things, we need to do this. We need to let the relational precedent that God has set in our lives be what we lean on for the future of who he will be. Again, we're fickle. He's faithful. We won't be the same person tomorrow. We could really crush a really disciplined day today on Monday, and then on Tuesday, it's like, man, it was a cheat day. It's like, was it really? It's like, well, it was. It wasn't supposed to be, but it really was. I didn't do any of the things I was supposed to do. Like, we're that way, but he's not that way. We need to let the relational precedent that God has given us of who he is allow that to shape our current fears and those things. So I talk about this a lot. I'm going to continue to talk about it. I think everybody needs a redemptive calendar. Needs something. We have our normal 12-month calendar. You need like your own special redemptive calendar. So a redemptive calendar is this. It's a calendar that's personal to you and your history with God where you mark out, remember, celebrate the days when you've experienced God's faithfulness in your life or around you in some way. So here's mine. I have 
that on the screen. So here's mine. These are our family celebrations. These are just days that we celebrate randomly where God broke in and was faithful. Marriage day, that was the day. Deliverance day, I've talked to you about that. We get delivery on that day from Grubhub or whatever. Uh, New York day, uh, TED Talk day. That's not where you watch a TED Talk. That, I'll explain that in a second. But then I have my own personal days. Like That's when I came to faith in 2004. I've called the ministry two years later. Um, April 28th and April 16th, those are too personal to tell you what those were, but they were significant portions in my life where God spoke to me directly about something I really needed to go and do, and things that were, anyways, just changed my life, those dates did, but um, we celebrate these things, we have this thing, and I'm not saying you should do this, it's really cool, but I do think that we're supposed to remember these things, and so TED Talk Day, that was yesterday, five years ago, and it was this, it, it, Teddy struggled to talk for three years and never said a word. And also, I've shared this story before, so I'm not going to go in depth. But yesterday, five years ago, I went to this church and just had, I was just desperate for somebody to pray over my kid. And tons of people have, but anytime I could find somebody, I was like, you pray? Great. My son's name is Teddy. I need you to pray for this because I want to hear the boy say, Dad. And I'm tired of not hearing him say, I love you. Like, I want to hear him say those things. And so I'm desperate for that. Will you pray for, for my son? And he did. And then a couple of weeks later, Teddy starts talking in full sentences, not in, what did he say? He said, uh, she was like, I love you, Teddy. And he goes, I, I love you too, mama. And she freaked out. Like, it was like, like just one thing. I was like, bah, like this whole thing. And uh, it was just amazing, amazing thing. And so we just memorialized the day. And so yesterday we were talking about it. And I was like, you can have, because it was your mouth that the Lord opened, you can have whatever you want to put in your mouth as food, like, you know, whatever you want. And so he always chooses donuts. He's like, I want a glazed donut, a chocolate donut, and a chocolate donut with sprinkles. And I was like, you got it, my friend. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we went and hung out with some friends last night, and we brought tons of donuts over, and we just shared the story again of just reminding them and ourselves, like, he answers prayer. He's still faithful. He was faithful five years ago. We believe that today, and we need to be reminded he still does these things. And for them and their lives and what that family is walking through, they needed to be reminded he still answers prayer, impossible prayers. He still does things that you're like, I don't know. If he doesn't step in, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what he's going to do. It's like, you need to be reminded of those things. And so for you to look back at your history and to find places like, where has he broken in? Small ways, big ways. What has he done? And where can you lean on the relational precedent before? And it may be these spaces where it's like, man, this is the day I went to counseling for the first time and I finally got some healing. This is where the marriage came back together. This is where the addiction finally, he just got brought up and we, we were able to deal with it. And then that was the beginning of this thing. And I can't believe people confessed those things. And this is where I confessed my sin over here and I received healing. And James 5, 16 is actually real. And just all these different things. This is where God, I needed God to help me and he broke in and helped. This is where I needed him to house me and he did that. Just marking these days out. And you, they don't, I mean, I would say, like, get bounce houses and buy balloons and noisemakers and all kinds of stuff and just go ham and just have the best party of your life. Make it the best day ever so that you're reminded God is this good. And I think that's something we should constantly remember. I think we, we celebrate Easter and Christmas, and I think that's awesome. We should, and we want to celebrate those things hard. But the pagans celebrate those things too. We have been transformed from death to life. There's something different about us, and he is still not just saving us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, but he is still active and working in our lives today. And we need to know that and be reminded of that because if we find ourselves in this spot where it's like he spun the wheel of, of time and now he's kind of distant and beyond, it's like you're, you're thinking of a God. You're just not thinking of our God. That's not who he actually is. He's very involved. He wants to be personal. He's, his whole life was wanting to do everything he possibly could so that he could spend time with us and be with his people. He is Emmanuel. This is who he wants to be. And so he wants to do that for you as well. And so we just need to remember those things. I'm trying to go fast. All right. Last one. Uh, the third thing that I think we need to do, and we do this with communion, but the third thing we need to do is repeatedly look to what Jesus has done. 
just constantly. If you ever go, church is bigger, there's better things than Jesus. There's not. All of this was his idea. All of this was about him at the beginning, and all of this is for him. It's from him are all things, and to him are all things. Everything is about him and for him. And so we need to repeatedly, like David was constantly just doing this in his mind, we need to repeatedly look to what Jesus has done. Last illustration, but there's this awesome book called Black Hole Focus. And it's written by this guy named Isaiah Hankel, and he talks about this amazing study of, of hope and experiencing some of those things. So before I tell you the, the, what he says, this is about rats, okay? That's what he's going to talk about. Every time I share this story, people are super worried about the rats. Don't worry about the rats. They're fine. Well, I mean, it was 1950. They're dead now. So that's when it happened, okay? So don't worry about the rats, all right? Some of you are, you know, your pet people. Don't worry about the rats. All right. This is what he says. During a study at Harvard in the 1950s, Dr. Kurt Richter placed rats in a pool of water to test how long they could tread water. On average, the rats would give up and sink after 15 minutes. But right before they gave up due to exhaustion, the researcher would pluck them out, dry them off, and let them rest for a few minutes, and then put them back in for a second round. In this second round, how long do you think they lasted? Remember, they just swam to, unto failure only a few short minutes ago. Could they do five more minutes, 10 more minutes, or match the 15 minutes like before? No. The rats swam in the water for 60 hours, or two and a half days. The conclusion of the research was that because the rats had been saved before, they believed that they would eventually be saved again. Because they believed salvation was on the way, they could push their bodies way past what they previously thought possible. I know, I love this story. I know it's about rats, but if, that is the perfect picture of the gospel. Salvation has come for us already. He has done something in history to mark a moment, and the calendar for everyone, pagan world and Christian world, pivoted. We went from counting down on the years to counting up on the years. Something substantial happened through this man's life. And so for us, we're supposed to remember salvation has already come. What's he like? Why should we give our lives to him? Why should we give our time to him? It's like, because he is the God who saves. He has done this before, and he will do this again. The idea is that we're supposed to constantly look back to the cross and envision what he did there and go, what do you, what do you think of me as, a, as the person that I am and the failures that I have and all this? Like, you loved me when I was your enemy. How much more do you love me now that I'm your son or your daughter? Like, you, 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 you cared for me and did work for me and, and it was kind to me when I was your enemy. And that's what you were doing on the cross. And now as your sons and daughters, how much more will you love me and be kind to me and care for me? You saved me from my biggest issue, which was sin that separated me and you. How much more are these other things that are smaller and so much more insignificant than sin, Satan, death, and hell? You, you did all of that without me asking how much more now that I'm asking for these other things. The idea is that we're supposed to be able to look repeatedly to Jesus every week, looking at the, the, the bread and the, the, the blood, and looking at the, the bread and the wine, and looking at those things and being reminded, this is what he does, this is who he's like. His name means God saves. This is what he's like. So what does he want with your life? He just wants to constantly lead you into more and more everlasting fullness of life. That's what he wants. Not just for eternity, but here and now. This is what he wants for you. And so life with him is this invitation. He's like, please come to the party. Please come to this space that I have for you. I'm not going to force you in, but I'm going to invite you until I can't talk anymore. Like, I want you to experience this life that I have for you. And I died to give it to you, and I rose again. And so now your hope is secure. The foundation won't ever shift, and I will always forever be inviting you into this thing and going, please draw closer to me. Please follow me so that you can experience this life I have for you. This is our story, and this is what's true for us. And so for us, fix your eyes on the Lord and not on your problems. 
have this space where you look back over what's happened in history, where you're able to go, like, where he's been faithful. And if you can find one, great, find one, and memorialize that thing and celebrate it. And if you can't find my house, we can do that. That's fine. Look back in redemptive history and find one. Grab some from my story. We can just come party at my house. We can do that. That's fine. But we need these spaces to remember. We need to repeatedly keep these things in front of us. And I think for us, we'll experience what David has experienced. Like, my fears have become tranquil within me. I've been able to, Dale Bruner says the, the word trust is the word relax, realistically. I've been able to relax in the Lord. And I think for us, when we're able to experience that, that's what happens when we actually take refuge in the Lord. And so my encouragement to you is to do that, to practice these things, and to accept the invitation to go, like, I want to fix my eyes on you, I want to remember who you were, and I need to repeat it over and over and over until my fears are relieved within. So let me pray. Father, thank you for your kindness towards us. Uh, Thank you for the cross that it just constantly reminds us of uh, the depth of our need. Somebody had to die and you chose to say, like, let it be me. Um, and so, Father, I'm just grateful for that. I pray that your love for us would rest afresh on us, Holy Spirit, that you would move in our hearts just to remind us of who you are in the midst of what we're walking through right now because every family and every person is dealing and walking through something completely different. But you have been faithful before, and, you, and you'll be faithful again. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help them to walk in that, to live that experience, and allow that who you've been in the past to be confidence for them and hope for them in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, again, no formation without repetition. You will be, whatever you repeat is what will reform you into a different person. Um, and so, beginning the liturgy that Rainey did, I want to do a liturgy before we take communion. Um, and so I'm going to, it's just a prayer. Uh, it's this beautiful song um, that I want us to, we're not going to sing it. I'm not going to sing it. It's not that. We're just going to say it. But I'm going to say the parts at the beginning, and then you can say uh, the parts underlined. But let's say this, and then we'll take communion together. Uh, I'll say the parts that are not underlined. I was a wretch. I remember who I was. I was lost. I was blind. I was running out of time. Sin separated, the breach was far too wide, but from the far side of the chasm you held me in your sight. Jesus, you made a way across the great divide, left behind heaven's throne to build one here inside. And there at the cross you paid the debt I owed, broke my chains, freed my soul. Now for the first time I had hope. Let's say this together. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, you have washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you have saved my life. You brought me from the darkness into glorious light. You took my place, laid inside my tomb of sin. You were buried for three days, but then you walked right out again. And now death has no sting. And life has no end. For I have been transformed by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, you've washed me white. Thank you, Jesus, you've saved my life. Brought me from the darkness into glorious light. Just come when you're ready, and let's take communion. And remember that he loved you before, he loves you now, and he will love you again.